Well, good morning, you guys. It's a quiet room today. Well, I'm not teaching, so it's not my uh, it's not my job to rile you guys up at all. So you can be thankful for that. Um, but I am going to read our opening passage of scripture this morning, and it's from Galatians chapter six. Uh, we'll be studying in Mark chapter six this morning, but from Galatians six, uh, this is the passage of scripture um, that was requested to be read. Oh, sorry, it's Galatians five. It was Galatians five, wasn't it, Todd? I believe so. Okay. He asked me to read this. and I'm like, so if I read the wrong thing, no, I'm just kidding. It's Galatians five. Sorry. Verses 22 and 23. It says this, you guys will know these verses, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't you guys welcome Todd up. Apparently, I do this a few times before I'll stop doing that. Um, <laughs> well, good morning, you guys. Dang, this is short even for me. Okay, I'm not going to mess with it. Um, my name is Todd Steele. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Transform. Um, I'm not one of the regular teachers if you're a visitor, uh, but you will see me semi-regularly from time to time. Um, and this morning, we are going to continue our study through the book of Mark, um, in Mark chapter 6, so while I'm talking, if you, thank you. (laughs) If you want want to go ahead and turn there, feel free. Um, But I want to start out by talking about fear. Fear is a great motivator in our lives often, isn't it? I think this is something we've all experienced, where fear has either paralyzed us to not move at all or move in a direction we may not um, want or need to move. Uh, I remember one of my first jobs out of high school, I worked at a local car dealership. Um, It was a lot attendant, so basically it was my responsibility to wash cars, make sure they were locked up at night, do that sort of thing. And uh, at the time, I did not know how to drive a manual transmission, (laughs) which is a problem if you have about 80 cars that you constantly have to take care of because there will be a chunk of them that are manuals. Um, What was also a problem is if you've ever worked at a car dealership, you know that they have like a, a very specific culture there where you have a mix of white collar and blue collar type atmosphere where you have in... The sales floor up front, um, you have salesmen who, you know, they've never seen going, going, hanging out by the water cooler, coffees for closures, that kind of, um, I've never seen that movie. I don't know if that was an appropriate reference to make (laughs) from the pulpit, but, um, you know, um, this very kind of macho boys kind of culture in on the sales floor. And then in the back in the shop where you have the mechanics, it's a different kind of culture, but it's, it's still more blue collar. It's good old boys who work on cars all day. And then they go home and work on their own cars for fun. Um, which I don't, don't understand. Um, but if you've worked in these types of environments and I'm, I'm generalizing here, if you have worked in these types of environment, I'm not making a a judgment or a comment about your character, but if you worked there, you know, the, you know the cultures, you know what I'm talking about. Um, where there's 
culture of if you've ever been inside a boys' locker room, of just um, men. <laughs> acting like boys oftentimes. It's a very boys club type environment um, which lends itself even for we were adults at the time we were all adults to like bullying and hazing. Um, guys doing this to other adult guys. So this idea that I didn't know how to do something that all these other guys like thought were just like a basic life skill even though like like 2% of the population drives stick these days, but whatever. Um, I was really kind of petrified by my fear that I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. And I did, that fear did eventually drive me to learn on my own, but not before I almost wrecked an $80,000 car. <laughs> um, it was okay, which... Ten years ago, an $80,000 car was like a Camaro, and now it's like a mid-sized sedan, so. <laughs> um, but fear was my main motivator. I did learn eventually, but fear was the main motivator, and it led to foolish decisions. In our passage today, which is in Mark six fourteen, we see that Herod Antipas is no different. Um, but first, before we read, just a little bit of history uh, to set the scene. So we're all aware of the figure of Herod the Great. Um, he was a uh, king or governor over Jerusalem during the time that uh, Mary was pregnant with Jesus. This is the Herod that meets the wise men. This is the Herod that eventually um, has all the young boys of Bethlehem uh, slaughtered for his fear of losing power to the new king of the Jews. Um, after he dies, the Roman Empire, which is ultimately in charge, splits the land of Judea amongst four rulers. So that was Salome I, which was Herod the Great's sister, um, and then his three sons, who were all from different mothers, um, but are all named Herod in a different way. So we're going to have fun with names today. Um, there was Herod Archelaus, Her Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas who is the Herod that Mark 6 is going to talk about here. And first off, the thing about Herod is Herod was not really a king. Because that land had been split into four regions, he was what was called a tetrarch, which just means a ruler of a quarter. But he wanted to be king. He wanted that power, and he wanted that prestige. Um, that's probably why Mark refers to him as King Herod, because either it's what the local people were just required to call him at the time, and that was just, if you were below him, that's what you were going to call him, or you're going to lose your head. Um, or it could be a snide remark. It could be sarcasm, like yeah, he called himself the king, but he wasn't really a king. But it was, in fact, repeated requests from multiple Roman emperors to be granted the title of king that actually ended him getting up removed from his power completely and exiled. Herod wanted and coveted personal power more than anything else. And when you covet something, what's your biggest fear? Losing that thing. So with that in mind, uh, like I said, Mark chapter 6, verse 14, 
Um, and we're going to go through 29. I'll read the whole passage, and then we'll start breaking it down. So Mark 6, 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well-known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and claim him in prison, or sorry, chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed and yet liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give to you. He promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask me, I will give up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head on a platter. She said. I want she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. And although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is good, even when it's a dark passage like this. Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning that nothing that comes out of human knowledge would, um, would be spoken here, but only you and your spirit would move and teach us all, Father. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, show fans, who has any of this cross-stitched on a pillow at home? <laughs> it's a dark and it's a depressing passage. Um, so first off, in verse 14, what did Herod hear about? Well, the disciples were sent out to share the gospel. If we remember last week, when BJ shared, uh, Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs to preach the good news, to heal the sick, to drive out demons. And there's rumors floating around. It's Elijah. It's a prophet of old. Is it John the Baptist resurrected? And Herod and his guilty conscience catches wind of it. Have you, ever, have you ever done something wrong as a kid and it just kind of eats at you? And every time your parents would call you, you'd, you'd jump like those cat videos where they put the cucumbers behind them. <laughs> Timmy, I was framed. He has a guilty conscience and his number one priority is to keep and maintain his power. And if you think a guy that you executed is is risen from the dead, it's a serious threat to your power. So let's hold a pin in that um, and 
and we'll come back to it later. But then at this point, in verse 17, Mark begins to flash back to earlier events that explain Herod's con. Herod for Herod himself had given orders to arrest John in prison on a case his brother had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So, brother's wife. So a little bit more family history. Um, so, Herod Antipas, who again we're talking about here, was married originally to a woman named Phasilius, who was the daughter of a man named King Aretas IV of a country named Nabitia, which was a small kingdom kind of east of Israel. It would kind of partially be in what would be modern-day Saudi Arabia. Um, during a visit to Rome, Herod Antipas stays with his half-brother, Herod II, or also Herod Philip, the, one of the other tetrarchs. Um, during that visit, Herod Antipas meets Philip's wife, Herodias, and they fall in love. Uh, now, when I say that, I'm just repeating what the history books say. Um, I think that if we like had a conversation uh, about this, we would come to the conclusion that whatever is going on here cannot legitimately be called love. But they seem to fall in love. And if that, if this situation doesn't already seem messed up enough, um, strap in. If you're wondering, why is this lady named Herodias? That's because she's Herod the Great's granddaughter. She is the daughter of another one of their brothers who was executed because Herod the Great was also paranoid. He executed multiple of his sons, multiple of his wives. Um, he killed a lot of people for the same thing that we're seeing Herod Antipas dealing with. So both these guys are fighting over the right to marry their own niece. So Antipas, he divorces his first wife. He sends her back to Medita, which upsets the king. These are, this is not done amongst monarchies. Oftentimes, um, marriages were, they were never for love, actually. They were um, to make alliances. And this actually sparks a war between Judea and Nabita. So this guy, because of his lusts, has incest, um, fornication, and, like, murder. People are dying in a war over this man's selfish desires. So he marries his own niece, and he moves back to Judea. So I think John has a point here, right? I think he has the moral high ground. I think he's got a leg or two to stand on. Um, because it certainly is, a true, is true that according to the Torah, that is the first five books of Moses, the Jewish law, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and, and what we call the Old Testament, you can't steal someone else's wife. Um, uh, Leviticus 18 and 20 uh, speak to that. And what's interesting about that when we talk about the law, um, it made me take a left turn. Um, in my thinking about it, but I, I promise it relates. When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, before the angel came to Joseph and told him the situation, um, Joseph had the right to have her killed. 
um, according to the same law found in the same books that John was using to condemn Herod. Now, it tells us he wasn't going to do that. He was showing mercy um, had it been the situation he thought it was. But these laws, they're supposed to apply to everybody, even the king. In the Old Testament, the prophets, they don't pull punches with the other kings. But this guy, like so many other rulers before him, and kings that have come since, think he's above the law. Think he's above the ruling. Now, real quick, we can go back and forth um, about American law and how it works. Does it work? How it should work? Who's, who it applies to? Who it doesn't? And um, some of you might be thinking that and you want to go 10 rounds with me in the octagon about it. And others may be going, please don't, please don't, please don't, please don't. But what the text is talking about, what John is talking about, is the Lord's law, not our own civil law, not our own constitution, but the Torah, which was the Lord's instruction and wisdom to the people of Israel. It was the word that the Lord gave to Moses. And Herod, in his actions, is saying that he's above it, that he knows better than God, that his power gives him license to disobey and authority to do away with anybody who disagrees. He is above God in his own mind. Which that was even the lie of the serpent, right? Back in Genesis. You're not going to die. God just doesn't want what's best for you. You can take what you want and you will be fine. When we are faced with the Lord's wisdom and we choose against it and we take for ourselves what we think looks good in our own eyes, we set ourselves and our desires above the Lord. Look, I know God's word says this, but it's easier to do this. This is what I want. We make ourselves little gods in our own universe. And we will go to great lengths to make sure it's not disturbed. So, Herodias, in verse 19, Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and he liked to listen to him. So Herodias, he can't, she can't stand this guy. He's call, John's calling him out on the carpet. Um, this whole little world she's made herself a god of is being destructive, disrupted by a dude who dresses crazy and eats locusts. Um, I don't know if any of you are aware, Yesterday, in the UK, they had a coronation for their new king and queen. Um, I didn't watch it. <laughs> Maybe you did. Um, but um, I did see that there was um, some kind of drama and people upset that look at these people being dripped in uh, jewelry and gems that they stole from other countries. Um, and that uh, there, there's tabloid... Um, news galore around this specific family. Um, and there's plenty of things to call them out on. So imagine if in the middle of the ceremony yesterday, a homeless-looking dude got up and started yelling in front of the whole royal family about everything they're doing wrong. And then what if he was right and everybody else knew it and everybody else could see it? 
they'd be pretty upset, I imagine. You know, so you have this woman who, much like living in the middle of London, like the royal family, she was living at Rome at the time when she met Herod Antipas, the political and cultural center of the world. And she comes out to what is considered by many to be a backwater. And this guy dressed in camel hair comes telling her that she's wrong, that her husband should repent. When you made yourself a god of your own little universe, you have to neutralize every threat to it. Nothing that challenges nothing that challenges you can stand. But here's the issue. John's a holy man. He hasn't done anything wrong. And both the people and Herod know it. The, the Aaron revolt empire to the Jewish people. There's been multiple areas just known to the Romans. Killing somebody the people like is a good way of getting one of those things started and getting and losing your power. So he's resistant. And not just that, Herod is interested in what John is saying. Not enough to repent, obviously, but he likes it, and he wants to hear more. You ever met somebody like that? They hear a good teaching, they're a part of a Bible study. Um, you just start talking to them, and you get to, yeah, I know it should change. Yeah, I'll change. Yeah, I know that applies to me. Are you going to? Yeah. They don't. <laughs> and you know they're not. Is that us? Are we, do we listen to the word of God? Do we read our scriptures? Do we um, listen to teaching or other believers around us? And do we ignore it? You know, you're letting your sin win. But hey, I showed up to church. I dressed well. I listened to the guy. Um, and even though I'm not going to do what he said, I'm good. I'm fine. Well, right now, like, I'm the guy, <laughs> and I'm the guy that's saying that there's nothing special about the guy. Um, I'm not here because I float six inches above the ground every now and then. It's the opposite. Um, if the Holy Spirit is using me, great. Praise God. Um, but if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you have to respond. You have to make the decision to do the right thing. You have to choose to reject the title of king in your own life and hand that over to God to make God the king of your life. Well, Herodias isn't having it, and she will get her chance to keep her little world safe. So verse 21, an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet to his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. The grossness thickens. <laughs> um, so this girl, who's probably a teenager, she goes unnamed in the Bible, but we, we know from history, uh, she was named Salome the Third. Is therefore this man's great niece and stepdaughter. And the dancing question didn't please these guys because of her skills. She's not moonwalking across the palace. 
this dance was erotic in nature. And Herod, who was probably drunk at the time, all his buddies were drunk at the time, loves it. And he makes several oaths without thinking about it. But notice the fact that he is intoxicated and probably the most mentally vulnerable spot he can be. He only offers her half his kingdom. He's still shrewd in his exaggerated oaths. Now, he's not expecting that to happen. He's not expecting to hand over half his kingdom because, first off, it's not his to give. He's working for the Romans. He's a middle manager, so this is a promise he, can't, he wouldn't even be allowed to keep. Um, I, and I don't think Rome would be cool with handing over any plot of land to a teenage girl. Like, sorry, teenage girls. But, <laughs> um, but what he says when I said, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, that's, that's an old turn of phrase. Basically means, I'll give you anything as long as it doesn't make you a threat to me and my power. You can have 50%, but not 51%, because that makes me weak to you. The power, the prestige, the love of it all, that stays intact. Even the most generous gift will not touch that. Even the most generous gift, when he's thinking the least, does not touch that. Herod has built a strong wall around his idols. So then... When the time comes, these idols will have too much power over him, and there will be no way for him to stop what comes next. And um, verse 24, and I'm actually going to wrap up the, the passage. She went out, said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner in command, excuse me, commanded to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. So Herodias gets what she wants. She puts Herod in between a rock and a hard place. And when it came time to choose between his idols and the truth that was being spoken to him, he chooses the idols, the power, the reputation. That's what wins that day. Holy man, love the Lord, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, the one who baptized that Messiah the first ever to celebrate the Messiah, and he did that while still in the womb, was murdered so a power-hungry man can save some face, can save his reputation. Can you imagine being a Christian? A first, well, hopefully we're all Christian. Because you imagine being a first-century Christian um, the time after Mark reading this, reading this. You read, you know, Jesus sends out the 12, basically a mini great commissioning of, hey, go preach the gospel all over. And then you know as a believer that's, um, that's also your calling. And then it comes to this story. And, uh, and you know that the situation that you're doing it in, the context, 
that the preaching of the gospel is in has been the same since the beginning. The gospel does not cohabitate with the powers of this world. And eventually, N.T. Wright says something along the lines of, um, I didn't write it down, I wish I did, but the kingdom of the world will eventually become the kingdom of God. But anybody who is currently a king, a king within this world does not like that message because it means they're going to be dethroned. But does this story, does it remind us of anybody else? There are other stories in the Bible where a king's lust gets him in some hot water and he ends up committing murder to cover it up. David and Bathsheba. So, um, 2 Samuel, and, and this, this is a rabbit trail, but we'll, we'll, uh, you'll see where I'm going with this. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, you don't have to turn there because I like the way the ESV says it, so I'm reading from the ESV here. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. Christ his way to like the father. The rest of the story, right? She gets pregnant by David. The scheme hit out of it to make um, doesn't work, so he has Uriah killed. But there's and there's similarities here with another passage of scripture. There's a parallel here with another passage of scripture. So going farther back, where else in scripture do we see something that looks beautiful or good and somebody? takes it for themselves. We actually already talked about it earlier. It's Eve in the garden with the fruit. Um, we know this story as well. Genesis 3.6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So, a uh, little bit of a, uh, just a Hebrew word study for the flow of the Old Testament. Um, there are, if we were reading in Hebrew, we would see many of the s- same words repeat themselves. So the word that's translated into good, as in um, it, the tree looked good for food, and the word that is translated into beautiful in Second Samuel, as in the woman was very beautiful, those are the same Hebrew words. The same Hebrew words for um, the woman saw the tree and the woman took it. The words saw and took are also used in the same way as when David saw the woman and he takes her. So, in Genesis, the woman sees the fruit as beautiful and she takes it. In 2 Samuel, David sees the woman as beautiful, and takes her. Do we see the parallel? Do we see what it's doing here? What the narrative is trying to tell us, and this tells us all, and it, this narrative is all over the Old Testament, um, that what happened with David on the roof 
is the same thing that what happened in the woman with the garden. That on the roof, the serpent was there whispering the same lies into David, the same doubts into him that he fed to the woman. He doesn't have your best interests. He doesn't know what's good for you. This looks great. Take it. Do what you want. David had the same chance to reject the serpent in his lives as the woman did. They both failed. And what the larger universal narrative that the Old Testament um, is trying to point out to us um, with that is that when we face the choice between what the Lord has set before us and what the serpent would have us do, it's the same thing. We're brought back to the garden with the serpent whispering, you know what's best. Do what you want. God didn't say that. And it shows us that we routinely and consistently choose the way of the serpent over the way of the Lord, which are both completely different from Bruce Lee's way of the dragon. This is the dichotomy that we should see as our actions in the world. Does the choices we make glorify Jesus and love people, or does it rich and empower me and my personal needs and want? Now, nobody here has committed murder to save face at a party, I hope. But have we set aside the fruits of the Spirit because they're not pragmatic enough, because they don't achieve the goals that we want because it makes us look uncomfortable in front of the people watching. There's no social gain, no career advancement, and watch, I'm about to say a dirty word, no political victory to be one that is worth sacrificing the fruits of the Spirit. And that is, as Mike read, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If any advancement, if any victory, if any gain requires to sacrifice any of those, that is the way of the serpent, not the way of the land. I'm not saying you're not saved. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But who do we want the most honor and glory to go to? Is it us or is it Jesus? See, Herod followed the way of the serpent. Just like David, just like the man and woman before him in the garden. He was given the choice. He could have chosen to not arrest John. He could have chosen to not marry his brother's wife. He could have made all the right decisions. The, in fact, Herod's whole family really wanted to be good with the Jewish population. They um, were very interested in making um, sure that the Jews saw them as legitimate kings. So they, they've been to the temple. Herod the Great helped build the temple. They know the law. John didn't have to say it to him. They knew what was right and wrong. And they still, like, not just many kings and world leaders, but just as us, do often choose what is easy, what is convenient, what gives us power and control over the things that God would have us, what gives God power and control. And it did eventually lead to Herod's destruction. Within a decade, he lost his power and he was exiled. 
Um, after that, some say he committed suicide. Some say the Roman Emperor Caligula, I never said that right, one of the Roman emperors had him killed. But he died either way, just like John did. The difference is Herod probably died spiritually while John did not. John lived on. Because eventually, while this is a dark day that Mark has recorded for us, eventually Jesus on the cross through his death, through his resurrection, had victory. And we can walk in newness of, of life in that. Um, so worship team, you can come on up. What are the choices that we make? Do we choose the convenient? Do we choose the easy? And just because something's easy, just because it's the path of least resistance, that doesn't mean it's not the Lord's will. Um, but do we choose the Lord's will all over our own will? Do we choose to follow the king who died on a cross for us while we were enemies with him? who died a horrific and painful death so that we could have a relationship with him. And that's why we're going to celebrate communion together. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Um, if we want to go ahead and start passing out the communion. Remember, communion is a family meal where we remember, where we eat of the bread and remember the flesh that was scarred and we drink the juice um, and remember that the blood that was spilt. This is a family meal for those of us that have decided to walk the way of Jesus. If we have something we have to settle before, maybe do that, bring it before the Lord and then take your meal with us. I want to pray. We're going to worship for a bit, and then we'll take communion together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your gospel, for the good news that we don't have to scrounge in the dirt and scheme and connive and, and swipe at every bit of life that we can take, that you offer true life, Lord. You offered to us freely. You offered it to us while we were, as the song in the beginning said, as we were a mocker to you on the cross, Lord. You offer us life. Father, I pray that you would, that we would turn towards you, Lord, that we would turn away from the personal power, the personal gains and that we would turn towards following you in a way that will be painful sometimes, Lord, sacrificial, but that we would find joy in you in the midst of it, Lord. Lord, I pray these in your name.